Now, if you follow the calendar closely, and guess what? We are officially in the year of 2024. Now, despite the fact that we are in this new year, but that doesn't mean when we talk about this American society, the conversation is going to be much easier. And given the fact that for the year of 2023, we understand the complexity, that the intricate system within American society today. Not only we're looking at this political polarization, of course, today, it's more crucial for everyone to ask the question, what about the future for the country? Now, before we can actually answer that question, I think it's also equally important we need to understand the history of the country as well. Over the periods that we understand, of course, there's no denying that our founding fathers laid a strong foundation for the progress, particularly regarding this political ambition or this economic agenda for what we're having today. But there are still a few founding fathers or a few significant figures that throughout American history that we don't know. And guess what? Today, in this episode, we are going to talk about one of them, and whose name is Joel Roberts Poinsett. And of course, I'm not the expert on Joel, or I'm not the expert to talk about Poinsett, so that's why today, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who's Dr. Lindsay Rigel. Again, Dr. Lindsay teaches courses on U.S. history and the history of capitalism at Miami University. Her research focuses on the early national United States, particularly the confluence of economic interests, diplomacy, domestic politics, and military power. If you follow her book and follow her work, her new book, which is entitled Flowers, Guns, and Money, Joel Roberts Poinsett and the Paradoxes of American Patriotism. Well, Lindsay, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks. Hi. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Lindsay, I want to get started. Again, I have to say that before reading your book, most of us that have never heard of this person at all. Now, let's get to your book right away. This is how you describe Joel Robert's Poinsett. And I want to read something from your book. I want to get your further explanation. And I quote, Poinsett matters not just because he was, quote, a pure patriot, an honest man, or a good Christian. He was never fully any of those things. He matters because he embodied the contradictions and the inconsistency at the heart of American experiment. Lindsay, what does that mean? I mean, again, based on this description, he was never full of any of those things, such as a pure patriot, an honest man or a good Christian. But meanwhile, he embodied the American experiment. What does that mean? And what kind of message are you trying to deliver in those sentences? Go ahead. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, so point set, I think, embodies or exemplifies the first generation of like elite American men who would go on to have a significant influence on political, military, economic development um, that emerged in the, the years of and following the revolution. So he was born in 1779 during the American Revolution and his life kind of tracks the aftermath of that revolution, right? And this building of a new nation. 
Um, and in those quotes that Well gave, so those were some of the positive things that had been used by Poinsett's contemporaries or by later figures who were kind of remembering him. Um, positive things to describe him, right? And I make the point in the book that Poinsett's contemporaries use the word, they use the word patriot actually fairly often, like more often than I would have thought. Um, mm. And they often used it to refer to the spirit of the revolution, the spirit of George Washington, um, and somebody who had the nation's best interests at heart. Um, there are also people who wrote some very negative things about Poinsett. So not everybody referred to him as an honest man or um, a good Christian or any of those things. And right, so that's why he he wasn't any of those things, right? He's a complicated figure. He was involved in some really unsavory things and some also, I think, positive things. Mm. Um, but the reason I think that he embodied this kind of new form of American patriotism and why it's paradoxical is because around this time, the late 18th and into the early 19th century, we have the rise of like the individual and the recognition that like individual self-interest, that kind of Smithian capitalism, that spirit combined with enlightenment values, combined with the values of the American Revolution, there's this like promotion of the individual. Mm. And at the same time, patriotism requires devotion to one's country. And that I think is this tension that's at the heart of the American experiment. And Poinsett is both somebody who's deeply self-interested and is often doing things to promote his own kind of financial or whatever interests that aren't always in line with what's best for, say, his constituents, you know, in South Carolina, mm. where he was from, or the general population in the United States. Um, and yet he also, I think, thought that he was working in the interests of the United States and had its um, had its kind of best wishes at heart. Um, and that's a, that, that's a tension. And it, there's a lot of kind of paradoxical aspects of um, the American experiment. And I think one of the key ones is like slavery and freedom, right? And points that also... I think embodies that, but that the patriotism that I'm talking about um, and that points out embodies is that contradiction between, or the complementary nature of mm. self-interest on the one hand and devotion to one's country. Lindsay, I know in the book that you wrote extensively regarding Poinsett and his relationship or his personal relationship with several founding fathers. I mean, again, including James Madison, we're looking at Andrew Jackson. Now, I want to talk about, or maybe you can help us with better understanding regarding his relationship with Andrew Jackson. I mean, again, you are the expert and you're the historian, but when it comes to Andrew Jackson, I have to say that, I mean, throughout the media or throughout the internet research, Andrew Jackson was not a celebrated president. I mean, again, we look at history and he was, I mean, he was the, he was a, a former president, but meanwhile, there were a lot of negativity about this person. But meanwhile, Poinsett had this unique and also have this 
uh, what we say, hot and cold relationship with the president. So can you help us with better understanding? How would you describe Poinsett relationship with Andrew Jackson? And why was that important for you to include in the book? Go ahead. Yeah, so Andrew Jackson, especially within the past, I guess, few decades, um, has rightfully captured the imagination for his violence and um, the the crimes, I guess, mm. that he kind of committed against um, America's, um, the various Native populations that lived in the United States long before it was a nation, um, and as well as the status as enslaver. Um, <laughs> and I think that he, more than maybe other presidents, has attracted attention for his misdeeds mm. is because he's associated with, well, first he got a reputation as an Indian killer mm. earlier in his life with his, with his various milis, military service um, um, and during the era of like the war of 1812. And then he's the president that signed into act the Indian removal act of um, he signed into law the Indian Removal Act of 1830, uh, which legalized and provided the means for the removal of Native peoples uh, west of the Appalachian Mountain and essentially um, ultimately resulted in kind of the forced relocation to territories in Oklahoma um, down the line. Um, and point set, well, but the point I make in the book is that while Andrew Jackson, we associate the Indian Removal Act and the trail of tears that resulted with Andrew Jackson, Point Set was actually the Secretary of War. Mm. The kind of key years of the trail of tears, which was 1837 and 1838. And so he's in many ways the, he's the one kind of administering that forced removal and genocide of um, Native peoples from the eastern United States um, out west. Um, and the reason they have this relationship um, begins, points out ahead, no one really knows exactly when they first kind of met or, or whatever, but um, he had on a kind of trip um, Earlier in his life, Poinsett had ended up having a meal with Andrew Jackson um, somewhere in either Kentucky or Tennessee. And um, they started to establish kind of correspondence. And, and then their relationship really solidifies during the nullification crisis in South Carolina in the early um, 1830s when... Um, a group of South Carolinians was attempting to nullify a federal tariff and essentially not collect it. Um, and that led to some pretty heated um, conflict between the nullifiers on the one hand and the unionists on the other. And point set was Andrew Jackson's kind of confidant slash point person on the ground in Charleston. And point set, despite being um, a South Carolinian elite enslaver did not take the stance of many slaveholders, which was to um, 
oppose this federal tax. And instead, he becomes a strong unionist. And he's the one informing Andrew Jackson of what's happening with the nullifiers. He actually, Andrew Jackson, secretly <laughs> sends him a shipment of federal weapons to use against the nullifiers should, should tensions escalate into like an armed conflict. Mm. Um, and I think partly for Jack or for Poinsett's support of Jackson's policy, such as enforcing that federal tariff, um, he's rewarded with the post of Secretary of War by um, Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren. Mm. Um, and then while Poinsett, while Jackson is kind of retired from public life and, and Poinsett is Secretary of War, they're still corresponding. And Poinsett's actually asking his advice for things like how to most effectively wage warfare against mm. the Seminole Indians in Florida um, and other aspects of this kind of um the events associated with, with what we kind of call Indian removal. Um, so throughout the rest of Jackson's life, Poinsett again remains a kind of correspondent and is routinely giving him updates and asking for his advice. Lindsay, I want to talk about another unique aspect of Poinsett. Again, let's go back to the book that you mentioned that Poinsett channeled his love of order and the regulations into another of his lifelong interests, which was agriculture. I mean, again, I think this is quite fascinating because we understand when we talk about um, agriculture or farming industry, one of the founding fathers that too often that come to our mind was Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he was an architect, and of course, you know, he was fascinated and he was devoted to the farmland. You know, he was able to grow vegetables, and I mean, he was such a good, or we say, a, a man of, of what we called um, jack of all trades. But when we talk about Poinsett, what what about his interest and a passion in agriculture? Let's talk about that. And also the second thing is, why was that important for you to cover in the book? And go ahead. Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, you definitely read about Jefferson and we do think of him as the founding father and most closely aside to the yeoman farmer and also just as a kind of, as you said, jack of all trades. And I actually think a lot of these founding figures were were like i guess what you could in a positive way say you know renaissance men right they were learned and they dabbled in a lot of different things um because they didn't like we do today believe education should be so strictly focused on like mm. one specific job um they were men of like the liberal arts essentially and point set is yeah he's definitely embodies that kind of liberal, and I mean that in the classical sense, kind of liberally educated individual who's interested in a lot of things. Um, and one of those things is agriculture. And I think that his interest in agriculture is both, yeah, actually he was curious about, like he just genuinely was interested in various plants. Um, he belonged, you know, he co corresponded with famous botanists in the United States and abroad. I also, though, there was also a, a more pragmatic reason behind that. And especially as he got older, he really wanted to diversify 
the agriculture of South Carolina and the South more generally. And he, I think, was concerned that they were so reliant on the production of namely cotton um, and also rice and these um, and commodities that were grown by um, enslaved individuals. And while he was an enslaver himself, uh, and certainly was not um, like morally opposed to the institution. He also, I think, hoped that the United States could move away from its reliance on enslaved labor, um, or at least he saw that that was maybe coming down the road. And so he hoped that his home state, and again, the South more generally, could develop, um, should could start kind of diversify its agriculture and start producing, growing more things besides cotton and rice and other of those kind of um, Southern staples. Um, and the, the kind of piece of that kind of interest in uh, the natural world or botany that he's, he is most famous for is like the poinsettia. So when he is ambassador to Mackey's Ark to the United States is first ambassador to Mexico um, in the second half of the 1820s. And while he's down there on, um, he's basically scouting the profitability of mines because that's another of his interests is finding investments for himself and his friends. <laughs> um, but he sees the, what was called the Flor de Noche Buena by the Spanish. Um, and then previously, um, had had a different name under, um, it was an ancient Aztec flower mm. um, and has a different name in the Nahua language. Um, but Poinsett saw that, saw its beauty, was interested in it and sent it to people in the United States. Um, and it starts appearing in kind of agricultural fairs and flower shows. And by the 1830s, it's being called the Poinsettia. And I, I, don't think he had any visions of it becoming the kind of commercial success that it is today. It's the most kind of economically significant potted plant in North America. Um, and I don't, and I don't think Poinsett had visions for that. I think that was maybe a, a plant that he just genuinely thought was interesting or aesthetically pleasing. So he had, he had, it was complicated the way that he thought about agriculture, but he did have as one of his goals, the diversification of the South's agricultural um, production. Mm. Lindsay, <laughs> let's talk about his political career. Again, going back to the book, that this is something that you wrote, and I want your um, explanation, and I quote, Self-presentation was essential to Poinsett's balancing act between political reputation and personal profit. I mean, he worked to project an image of himself as a cosmopolitan, curious, honorable statesman who cared about his state and nation. Now, I mean, there are a lot of fancy words in what, we just, what I just read, but what does that mean when we talk about what well, when you wrote that self-presentation was essential to Poinsett, especially looking at his political reputation and personal profit. How should we understand those key terms? Self-presentation, political reputation, 
and personal profit. And what does that mean when we talk about point set? Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, like all politicians, right? He cares about his reputation and what people think of him um, because it. Some some points of his in his career, he's an appointed official, but other times he's serving in either the South Carolina state legislature or in Congress. So he's relying on voters, right? So on the one hand, he has to project an image of himself that is amenable to the people that he hopes will be voting for him, and that's in line with politicians, you know, throughout our history and today. Um, he also he, I think that he was good at blending in or not a chameleon exactly but slightly he understood how to slightly shift how he presented himself to different audiences mm. and that i think is one of the reasons that the state department decides to send him as a secret agent to latin america during to south america during the latin american independence wars because he a had language training um, and knew Spanish, and also because he, more than maybe other Americans at the time, could knew how to interact with people in different places. Um, and so I think he could shift kind of how he's presenting himself to people based on whether he was dealing with... Um, uh, Argentinian patriots versus um, South Carolina voters mm. versus British bankers um, versus Mexican elite. You know, he could shift. Um, and, and so self-presentation, I think, was important to how he got to work in so many different facets of early Republican politics. Um, and then this also, of course, extended to his financial dealings. And he, despite competing with the British in various aspects of um, his career, he also did business with British people, right? And had close connections to um, the Barings Bank in London. And he could again, he could kind of fashion himself to interact with all of these different groups. Mm. Lindsay, two more questions before letting you go. Now, when we talk about his political strategies, this is also something that you mentioned in the book, and you wrote in the book, that Poinsett's strategy blended cooperation and subtle coercion. In addition to offering support, Poinsett made indirect threats, such as the United States never would suppose it necessary to have an armed force to protect her commerce in the rivers and harbors of a friendly power. I mean, again, you mentioned that Poinsett, he is, I want to be careful, he is the master of the military power and he understood the military power strategy so well. But let's go back to this indirect threat that he, he, he used what does that mean that when he said the U.S. never would suppose it necessary to have an armed force to protect her commerce in the rivers and harbors of a friendly power, does that mean that in the eyes of Poinsett, 
that in order to exercise or strategize this military power, U.S. was going to be very careful, and of course, a U.S. had to pr-、uh, place the rivers and the land as a priority before making any other hasty decisions. I mean, how should we understand that quote, and what does that mean? Go ahead. Yeah. So. I think that was a message meant to suggest that if you're on friendly terms with the United States, and if you play by kind of、um, our favorable trade policies towards the United States, and you allow kind of commerce to flow freely rather than enacting trade restrictions on commerce from the United States, that will be a friendly nation, and there's no going to be no problem there. But I think the underlying message is, if you're not going to play by those rules, if you're not a friendly nation, then yeah, we might suppose it necessary to、um, to use military force against you. And there were other diplomatic agents in this era who sent similar similar message, especially to newly independent nations in、um, South America. They didn't necessarily like the American military. Obviously, isn't wasn't what it is today.、Um, and so, in some sense, some of these are almost like empty threats. But Poinsett was instrumental in helping、um, kind of expand U.S. military power. And I think the hope was that yes, push come to shove, force could be used. But again, we want to be we want to play by friendly friendly rules with others if if they'll play that way. Well, it sounds to me that Lindsay again. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're today when we talk about political strategy, we're looking at this military strategy. There's a common way to understand it. It's called a carrot and a stick. I mean, we we, we want to be nice to you, but meanwhile, you have to understand there's a line in the sand, and you cannot cross the line because once you cross it. Which means you are not actually respect our boundaries, and you are not actually respect our law and order. So, which means we have the sole authority, where we have the power to exercise in order to protect our citizens and also our interests as Americans. Now, Lindsay, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question again. Going back to the introduction page of your book, you wrote Joel Roberts' poinsett. Is and was everywhere if we look for him. Look at the complexity of American political system today, and try to comprehend the intricacy of the fabric of American society. Let us say, for any of the readers who are unknown to Poinsett, what would you expect, or what do you wish the readers to understand? When we finish reading the last chapter of your book, especially how does his life reflect, or hopefully can teach us something about the modern political system, or even the decency of being a statesman, or being a politician, or just being a simple human? Your final thoughts? Yeah, I guess what I hope most that people get out of the book is that. The past is complicated, right? And that's historians say that all the time. It's complicated, right? There's no easy, simple answers or easy, simple models to explain how people operate or how politics 
operated or operates in the present. Um, but I hope they see that there are all these individuals in our past who don't easily fit into certain categories that we want them to fit into, like points that was things like a Southerner and an enslaver and a Jacksonian Democrat. But he, he did lots of things throughout his life to contradict the kind of things that we associate with those stereotypes. Um, just for one example, he was a Southern enslaver who opposed the annexation of Texas, and he actually opposed for a while its independence in general. He wanted it to remain Mexican because he knew some of um, the kind of key political elites in Mexico. And so a, a Mexican Texas was better for his investments in that area because he thought that if it changed hands and became uh, part of the United States, laws and regulations would change, and then maybe his... Um, his dealings there wouldn't work out as well. So that's just one example. But but right, I, I guess I hope readers most see that the, the past and the individuals in it are um, are more complicated than sometimes we want them to be. Well, again, Lindsay, Joel Roberts' poinsett was surely a complicated person. But meanwhile, I have to say, the more I read about him... And the more fascinating his life and his stories will become. And I hope that, again, more readers from our show are able to understand and also appreciate that the effort you put into the book. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Lindsay Regel. Again, Dr. Lindsay teaches courses on U.S. history and the history of capitalism at Miami University. I strongly encourage everyone go online to check out her new book, which is called Flowers, Guns, and Money, Joel Roberts' Poinsett and the Paradoxes of American Patriotism. Well, Lindsay, so much, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you back on the show for our future episodes. But meanwhile, again, it's an amazing book. And I hope and I pray that more readers who are really into American history really going to fall in love with your book and hopefully learn something more from Poinsett. So thank you so much for doing this.